0: Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com.
1: I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest on this episode is Dan Alshila Malik, Managing Partner at Unovis Asset Management. A global investment firm that provides early stage funding to entrepreneurs developing plant based and cultured meat alternatives to foods derived from conventional animal agriculture. Unovis recently announced the closing of its second fund, Unovis NCAP Fund 2, which is more than 3.5 times the size of Unovis's first fund, which deployed 45 million from 2015 to 2020. NCAP 2 is a 146 million euro fund approximately $166 million, with commitments from institutions, impact funds, and investors globally. Through its fund, New Crop Capital, and NCAP2, the team has invested in more than 50 companies, including Beyond Meat, Memphis Meats, Blue Nalu, Good Catch, Nova Meats, Alpha Foods, Zero Egg, and Miyoko's. As managing partner, Dan heads the firm's activities in North America and Israel, exploring deal flow, creating strategic opportunities, working with founders to solve daily challenges, and evaluate strategic decisions. This is a wide-ranging conversation about Dan's work with Unovis, his approach to investment decisions in the alternative protein space, thoughts on scaling a food business, working with founders. And how Unovis is strategically deploying capital to accelerate a global transformation in the food system. This is a must listen if you are an investor, entrepreneur, or just passionate about the future of food and the people and technologies involved in building it. Dan Altralam Malik, thank you for joining us on the Eat of the Planet podcast.
2: Hi, Neil. Great to be here.
1: So let's start with how you got interested in the world of venture. What's your background for those listening who have not met you or heard of the work you're doing before?
2: Thank you. So um, my background is definitely nonlinear. I was born and raised in Mexico and have always had an affinity for entrepreneurship, for food, for international business. Uh, I I studied business administration in my undergrad, and after that, I embarked on a career that has always had food involved in it in one way or another. I started off in corporate banking and had large Mexican food corporations that I was working alongside. Then I managed a small logistics company where we had some CPG and food service clients. So I learned about transporting goods from A to B. Then I moved to the US and as I was thinking through what was next, I ended up launching a natural snack company, uh, which was a very interesting five-year roller coaster where I learned a lot through mistakes. After that, I also was involved in a restaurant in New York City, a small hole in the wall in the Lower East Side. And from there, I managed a creative agency with a lot of food service and CPG ac- accounts, so if you mark that out, you know. In hindsight, I had touched on most of the areas of food. Uh, after I finished the time at the agency, uh, my now wife, then fiance, and I took some time off to travel the world, and during that time, I was doing a lot of soul searching about what was to come next, and I embarked on three things that that needed to have. One is I wanted it to, to be involved in the food industry because I enjoy it. I like food. I know, I know some of it. Uh, two, I wanted to work on things that were coming up in the future rather than solving the problems of today, but understanding what is coming up next. And that involves technology and that involves innovation. And the third part is that I knew I wanted this to have impact on the world in a positive way. And as we know, there's a lot of challenges in today. So it was still in my mind, very broadly defined. As I started to research and research, I came across three different verticals that sounded very interesting and appealing to me. One was all the revolution that's happening around indoor farming. The second had to do with waste reduction in the food industry. And the third thing was alternative proteins. And alternative proteins, they just caught my eye. Simply saying it, uh, the way that I saw it was that you could substitute one input from another and then take advantage of a complete distribution chain. So, uh, you know, that's very much easier said than done, but that is how I saw it at high level. So, as I started researching and researching, uh, I decided that I did not want to be an entrepreneur again. I didn't want to operate a company, uh, but at the same time, I did want to participate. And so the idea of venture had always been very exciting to me. Thankfully, uh, I came across Chris Kerr. Chris, now my partner, back then was uh, had started off with what is now our first fund, New Crop Capital, and he was also very highly involved uh, with just promoting alternative proteins in general. So after trying to track him down for a while, uh, finally I got him on the phone Uh He told me a little bit about his background. I gave him my whole spiel. um, And then he was interested. And I think he was interested because he needed help. He was working a lot, closing a lot of deals. But at the same time, he wanted to bring somebody on board, but didn't really have the time or the bandwidth to help them uh, on board. So, you know, after that phone call and a couple of other calls and getting together for a beer, he just said, you know, go figure out your job. And that was kind of like where it all started. And uh, it's been amazing ever since.
1: And which year was that that you uh, met up with Chris and started with Unovis?
2: So those initial conversations happened around 2016, towards the end of 2016.
1: Wow, so, yeah. okay. And, and I, I guess I have to ask this question. What was that restaurant in uh, the Lower East Side, the hole in the wall? I'm curious because I... I lived in New York for most of my life, so I would uh, maybe have come across it.
2: It was called La Barra. It was on Broom Street uh, between Orchard and Ludlow. Uh, very tiny hole in the wall next to this amazing uh, gluten-free uh, bakery uh, that I now am blanking on the name. Uh, baby Cakes. Sorry. Baby Cakes. <laughs> uh, and in front of a Barrio Chino. Which is just this amazing Mexican restaurant, uh, which has probably the best mezcal margaritas in New York City. Uh, it was a great, a great time, a great experience.
1: Well, we could probably spend an hour plus just talking about your restaurant experience or adventures, rather. Um, but we'll have to come back to that on a on a later episode. Let's let's dive deeper into Un- Unovis now. Um, so, in terms of the work that you do at Unovis, how would you best describe it? Uh, now that you've been doing it for almost five years now?
2: Um, It's a little bit of of jack-of-all-trades. Basically, I think our expertise, or mine in particular, is helping companies and entrepreneurs and founders at the earlier side of their trajectory, uh, helping them think through everything from branding and marketing, uh, going-to-market strategy, thinking through how to get manufacturing up and running, how to deal with other investors, how to think about building a team. So uh, what, the way that we look at it is founders, all startups, they're going to have uh, certain things where they're stronger at than others. So let's them focus on what they what they are strong at. And for everything else, let's see how we can help. That might be by sharing ideas or insights, that might be through our network that might end introductions that might be just by working with them and thinking through the different challenges uh, many times the entrepreneurs usually they will have the answer within themselves because they will know the companies much deeper than we will at any point in time but sometimes because we are outside, we can provide a different perspective and it's just a lot about bouncing ideas and you know, thinking through the pros and cons of all of the decisions that they can take.
1: And how would you describe the thesis of the fund and, and maybe that has evolved over time? But um, you know, if you were to put into categories the different technologies slash areas of food that you focus on and perhaps those that you don't focus on, uh that would be very interesting.
2: So at the high level, um As a team, we, just like a lot of people, understand that the food system is broken, and we have chosen to focus our efforts on one part, and that is reducing, and hopefully one day eliminating, uh, the use of animals within the global food supply. We see that this is a lose-lose proposition across the board. It has implications on our health as consumers, it is not an efficient way of producing food or the proteins that, as humans, we need for, for, to sustain our bodies. It has caused significant damage to the environment in different ways, and it's also terrible for the animals. So, we are saying if people can enjoy the products that they like, uh, because we are culinarily driven, so if they can enjoy things that they like eating, But these happen to be made out of other proteins. Why not? So to that end, through our first fund uh, called New Crop Capital, we made 42 investments over five years in companies all over the world, uh, primarily in the U.S., Europe, Israel, and some outliers in China, New Zealand, India, and Mexico, developing direct replacements to what we call center of plate using proteins that are coming through plant-based sources, through fermentation, and through cultivated or cell-grown means.
1: And so you're very much focused on companies that are actually producing the proteins. Uh, Is that where you limit yourself, or do you also look into uh, related business models that are, say, maybe more categorized as distribution or... Maybe to a certain extent, uh, even, uh, would you, let's give you an example. Would you invest in a restaurant chain? Uh, Is that, do you extend into those aspects of the the food system? Or are you very much focused on product CPG companies or technology companies that are producing replacements to animal protein?
2: We have made two investments in distribution side. Uh, a company uh, based in the Netherlands called GreenPro that is distribu- distributing a lot of plant-based products across Europe, uh, imported products mainly from the U.S. And we also invested in Purple Carrot, mm-hmm. which uh, was a uh, plant-based meal delivery system. Uh, those were interesting investments at the time. I would say that they fall just slightly outside of our area of expertise. Um, so on one side, we want to recognize that sometimes there are other opportunities for investment, but at the same time, we've been very focused and this focus has allowed us to gain significant understanding in general of the landscape. Uh, so we can identify white spaces, uh, you know, gathered foods, which is good catch is one of those, uh, examples, but at the same time, so that we have, all this understanding of what it takes to start and successfully grow a food company. So uh, I I think uh, it's great to be doing more and more things, but at the same time, the focus has played to our strength, at least so far.
1: Yeah, and obviously you've seen uh, a lot of that space also evolve since even say 2016 seems like not so long ago, but in the context of alternative proteins, it's so almost a lifetime ago. If you look at the landscape of companies that existed back in 2015, 2016, it was just a fraction compared to what's happening right now, not only in terms of number of companies, but also the types of uh, ingredients or technologies being used to produce these proteins. So it's, um, so I guess you definitely have that, that first mover advantage from, a, from an investment-focused standpoint. Uh, Generally, you mentioned that you look at companies in the early stage uh, of their growth or perhaps that's between seed to series A. Is that typically where you come in?
2: So our first fund uh, was primarily pre-seed and seed with some investments uh, going further down the line. Our second fund, uh, which closed at the end of December 2021, Is taking a little bit further downstream, so we are focusing primarily on Series A's and Series B's. Obviously, leaving some wiggle room for opportunities in the early stages if as they come about.
1: And then, so in terms of uh, investment horizons, this is a you know what is your general approach, and this may vary depending on the nature of the company, right? Because if you're Alternative proteins is a pretty broad bucket. If you're talking about plant-based, there's a lot more. Um, uh, you can actually uh, perhaps scope out what the time frame will be for a company to go from uh, manufacturing the product to eventually getting widespread distribution to scaling up and perhaps do an exit at some point. Uh, let's just stick with plant-based to begin with. What are the things that you're looking for in a company uh, say at this as at the series a stage in terms of uh, metrics that you you would look at as being at a high level obviously that you would look at as being very encouraging and positive and that is setting them up along the right trajectory to have a certain pace of growth compared to say some of your previous investments that may have exited at this point
2: uh- Well, I'll start, and and Chris probably shared this. Actually, I know he shared this when he visited with you. Um, But first and foremost, we invest under what we call our Food Pact, pact, which which stands for Price, Awareness, Convenience, and Taste. Um, So those are the four key drivers when we are looking at a company developing food products, starting with taste. Uh, Does this company have something that is delicious? Or does this company have something on the path towards being delicious? Because both are valid. Um, At the end of the day, we are in the repetitive business business. You know, so if consumers just come about and make one purchase, that is not a win. We want people that time and again will say, I want to go back to have and buy some of Abbott's Butcher's chorizo. Or I want to have another one of Alpha Foods uh, burritos and so forth and so forth. So first is taste. At the second level, it's price, because there's only so much that consumers will pay for any food product. And at the same time, price uh, takes into account gross margins, because there is limited amount of wiggle room in food uh, Mm -hmm. for margins. So we need to understand if these delicious products, can they be scaled? Can they be manufactured at a place where you are maintaining quality, you're maintaining food safety, very important, and you still have decent margins, taking into account that these products are going to be transported uh, all over the country and in many cases, all over the world. So uh, you might have something that is great, but uh, it only lasts one week, uh, refrigerated, and it can't freeze. Well, you probably, you might not have something there, even though it fits with all the criteria. The other two, awareness and convenience. Awareness is all about building a brand, and so here is where leadership and innovation on behalf of the founders really comes into play. Can they get people excited about what they're doing? Can they connect emotionally with them? Uh, you know, building a brand is not—it's not just about giving an agency a big check and saying, "Go and you know, develop a nice logo and find a nice name and URL for me." It's about creating this holistic experience that starts visually through the logo, uh, then is added on through the food itself, the packaging, and then it also involves the culture of the company. Food is a very collaborative industry. So every person who joins a food company, especially in the early years, is going to play a significant role in their success. And the last one is convenience. And I touched on it very briefly. But we need to be able to develop products that people can enjoy with the infrastructure that they have on hand. If it's in your home, if they can put it in the oven, cook it in a pan, use a microwave. If this is something that is going into food service, you need to be able to work with the tools that are already there. You know, any of the large uh, QSRs, McDonald's, Panera, Wendy's, you name it, they have fixed operating procedures. If you don't fit in there, it's not going to happen. So uh, that's that, you know high level. That is how we look about it. Uh, this goes for all the companies: plant-based, cultivated, fermented. Obviously, when we are looking at companies that have more sophisticated technology, call it per- fermentation, call it call it growing uh, animal cells in a controlled environment, then we also need to understand: can this actually be done? What is it going to take to scale up the volumes? Will it go, and can it actually be scaled up? You know, in fermentation, can you take you know something that you are proposing to do in very small uh, tanks, fermentation tanks, and then say we're gonna 100 exit? Will that chemi- chemical processes uh, that involve heat and pressure and enzymes and all these different uh, levers can that actually scale and maintain the quality? Because consumers are very finicky when it comes to taste. Uh, those are unknowns. And that's where, in the science part, we, uh, we rely on the expertise of others uh, who understand this better as well.
1: And, and in terms of uh, all those factors, do they, you know, this may be a a uh, tricky. Uh, I'm guessing the answer to this question is going to be it depends. But my question is uh, really, do you weigh all? To what extent do some factors weigh more heavily than the others? Right. So, a simple example, gross margins. Some people would only look at that and say, that, well, if you if you just can't manufacture this and you know maintain a certain level of margin, uh, and 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 maybe add in another factor, you can't scale that up quickly. All the other things are sort of uh, irrelevant, right? They, some of them are cuter than the others, but the real fact of the matter is you've got to be able to make money and show that you're able to scale that up. and And those those two numbers line up, you've got potentially a successful company. And of course, brand, all those other things come uh, come along with it, and you can perhaps pay people to 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 work on that for you. Do you think some factors way more are more important when you? compare them to the others or you know sometimes a company may have the right uh product even the right form factor it might have the right brand but they somehow just can't cut it from a manufacturing standpoint um to, to make that product consistently i guess in your experience what have you seen uh let me ask this question in a different way maybe what has tripped up companies in the past and and of course i want to know how important is gross margin versus everything else
2: yeah. um we'll start with my defining red lines uh first and foremost is the team is this someone whose values coincide with mine and that we can work collaboratively with if not, uh, we don't just send in a check and, you know, and get the paperwork done and say goodbye. So we recognize that we are going to be partners in the companies that we invest in and that we need to be there for them and we need to work collaboratively. So uh, and we need to have our, our values aligned. Uh, that doesn't mean that they need to be completely in sync, uh, uh, but it does mean that we can point to a shared vision of where we want to take that company and what type of actions we are okay taking to get it there. You know, So first and foremost, um, of everything else that I was talking about, you hit it on the nail. Uh, some things can't be scaled. So, And the, that is the biggest thesis that companies say, yes, I, when I scale it, I'll be able to bring down our margins. Okay, but let's let's try to walk that back and understand if that is doable, because we will know that the the price of inputs, for example, uh, we will always have the lowest price of commodities. We will also know that most companies won't be getting those commodities at that pricing, and that you also need to contemplate, uh, you know, for waste and for hiccups in the supply chain and inventory and all that. So we do have some data points. We also have an understanding of what it takes to manufacture a certain process and there are parallels so we need to understand if what the founders are proposing makes sense there will be a leap of faith but that leap of faith will come with due diligence and certain expertise so uh that is i would say that that is the biggest one we have invested in companies where the product was not great there yet where the large-scale manufacturing was not there yet but that is part of the risk and what we also need to be mindful of is that that risk should be commensurate with the valuation and the protective uh restrictions that as investors we get uh, be it liquidation preferences or whatnot so obviously if things were all rosy uh you know then it's a no brainer. But if it's a no brainer, the valuation is going to recognize it. So maybe you're not going to get such a good ROI on your investment. So, uh, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, it is an art. It is not a science. You don't put everything into a calculator and come up with a number, Uh, but you do use quantitative measurements to guide you through the process.
1: Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's very interesting. You know, I think, um, as a follow-up to that question, I would love your insight in into what is your general take on companies that um, are focusing more on branding and R&D as their core co- competency and relying on <clears throat> contract manufacturers as a way to quickly scale up the production of their product. Um I'm I've heard different points of view on this like where a lot of companies have the temptation to want to control the manufacturing process as a sign of that they finally come into their own and they've matured and and or oh, their product is so unique and complicated that they need to you know set up an entire manufacturing facility to produce it. And again, we're sticking more with plant-based now because cultivated is a completely different ball game on this. Um what is your general take on that and I and I think Or at least mostly from your experience, what have you seen uh, has worked for companies? Like, What is the right stage for them to start thinking about doing it themselves versus relying upon this this vast network of co-manufacturing facilities that exist?
2: Like everything else, it's not a one-answer-fits-all, but I'll give you some. uh, In most cases, I think if you can find a co-manufacturer that will give you the quality that is willing to take you on, and that is, it is performing, uh, that is my preferred path for a company in its earliest stages for many reasons. One, expense. Setting up a food manufacturing facility is very expensive. Two, knowledge. Getting it up and running and fine-tuning it is really hard. And three, execution. Getting that company to every day manufacture the products within tight margins, high quality standards is really, really hard. So if companies at the earlier side, when they're just building out the team, they're just getting to know their products. They're just building out the brand. They're building relationships with their distribution channels. Uh, taking everything on is it, it's just a lot. Uh, I don't think it usually makes sense. Plus, it's very expensive because you have to pour in a lot of money into uh, machinery, capital expenditures, whatnot. When is the right time is a very tricky answer. Uh, Because on one side, the further you postpone it, uh, the more you can take all the funding that you're taking and drive it towards growing top line sales. At some point in time, the economics uh, will change and it will be much easier to raise another round, call it $100 million as an example, to just build out your own manufacturing facility. But hopefully by that point in time, you already have distribution and demand for your products because that's how I look at things as a three-legged stool, manufacturing, distribution and demand. If you build out one of them too big and the other two are not at that size, then the stool falls over. So think of it. You build out this huge manufacturing facility on day one, but you don't have distributors really and nobody knows about your product. So every time you're turning on the machinery, it's going to be very expensive for you. On the second one, if you do all these contract negotiations with distributors and food service, but you don't have the manufacturing set up, then you can't fulfill. And at the same time, if you don't have the demand for it, then your product is going to sit on the shelves. And then the retailers are going to throw it back at you. So you're going to have, you know, complete losses. So we need the mix of all three. Having said all that, sometimes there is no existing infrastructure, no command that's going to take you on. That is usually reserved for the more sophisticated companies and obviously they do need to prove that their proprietary ip is so amazing that investors will be giving them at the earliest at the earlier stages of their life much more capital
1: love that answer that's uh, that's uh, the most well articulated way to respond to a very uh, complicated question that can vary depending on the company the product the founders you know you mentioned earlier in response to one of my other questions about how you weigh these different factors, you mentioned the importance of the founders, and you people hear that often from investors. Um, not to say it's a cliche, but everyone knows it's it's the it's the founders or the or the person and or people that are executing on the business strategy that truly make or break what what's happening. And of course, they have to surround themselves with. Uh, good advisors, a great team, perhaps a good board of directors and great investors who can not only connect them to all the right people, but can give them sound advice on these tricky subjects like uh, when do you start manufacturing yourself and what do you do with your brand? Um, what are the, you know, you mentioned values as being important, but what have you seen work really well for um in the, I, and here I guess we don't need to differentiate between plant-based or cultivated or fermenta- fermentation, but in terms of founders, what are the key qualities you've seen that have made them not just be a good fit for investment, but also that have, in your opinion, uh, more often than not resulted in success and growth and uh, um, you know follow-on funding rounds What are those qualities that you typically look for?
2: Um, I think the one that I have seen time and again be a part of companies that are doing amazing things are founders who want to grow. And you grow by putting yourself in challenging situations, by trying first and foremost, but then by learning of what went right and what went wrong, and also part of this growth is by being able to listen and to filter what is important and what is what should be filtered out. Uh, I think founders on one side they need to be decisive, you know, but on the other side, they need to be flexible, mm-hmm. and if you say these uh, you know. Together, you might be saying, well, you're expecting the impossible from them. (laughs) If they're decisive, how can they be flexible? But that's actually what the best founders are. They take a decision based on all the information that is available at that point in time, making a a very strong effort to get as much information as possible that is high-quality information, not echo chambers, but really listening to different points of view, putting things on the balance. Then they take a decision and then they learn and they see what did I get right? What did I get wrong? What happened that was outside of my control and how can I do it better? And uh, for me, that that is that is where that growth comes from. Um, it's also uh, very tied into leadership because founders who say the buck stops here and who own the mistakes but share in the triu- in the triumphs with their teams, those are the ones that are the most respected. Those are the ones whose team members are going to be so thrilled to go to work every day because they are building something better. They are inspired by their leaders. They are inspired to take risks, but to do so in a smart way.
1: Well put, well put. I love that. Um, so much great uh wisdom there in terms of the idea of being flexible at the same time being decisive you can't also you know flexibility can be misconstrued by some people uh, misinterpreted to mean that you need to take advice from everyone and listen to every point of view and change your opinions based on that in fact it just means you need to be more um, self-aware I think about mistakes as well and about your own shortcomings so that you're able to fill in those gaps um at a high level that's that's just uh that's just good advice in general it doesn't matter which space you're you're building something in um I want to kind of shift the conversation slightly now to talk about the world of um cultivated meat and precision fermentation let's let's talk about you know a lot has been written lately about cultivated meat the promise of cultivated meat or uh what some people are saying the 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 risk involved in uh, the space, given the unknowns with the science and the technology. You've obviously been looking at this space since its very inception um, and have a very informed opinion on what the current state of the technology is and where certain companies are in terms of uh, bringing products to the market, their ability to bring down costs and scale up production and, um, I'd love to get into all that, but I guess my first question as it comes to cultivated meat is more about how do you evaluate a company in that space, uh, given uh, it is so science-based and you don't, as opposed to, you know, when it comes to plant-based, you have comparables. You can look at other examples of companies where they were in year one, two, three, four, uh, and, and kind of estimate where... A potential uh, founder or company should be for you to be putting money into them. How do you make those decisions when it comes to cultivated meat, especially in these sort of early days? Um, one could say we're still in the early days, or maybe the early days have passed us. What what factors do you think about when you're looking to this this from the outside? What seems to be like this black box? World of uh, intellectual property owned by a few companies that are at the cutting edge of uh, the future of food. So, just you know, give me your high level views on it, and then go deep as much as you want to. I'm very curious about all of this.
2: Um, Look, if what we think about it, if we take a step back, uh, what are these companies proposing? Uh, Basically, they are saying we want to take some of the scientific knowledge. That was created for other fields, medical for example, and we want to recreate this idea, only we want to invert the economics. If you want to grow human cells for any particular medical reason, you know, the price per gram is, you know, has a lot of zeros added to it. But when you want to say, I want to deliver a couple of pounds of beef, pork, any any fish etc well the dollar it, it needs to be you know below 10 or 20 dollars you know so so what we're talking about is less of a scientific challenge but an engineering one which goes back to actually to the gross margins conversation that we were having before yeah i mean i am oversimplifying that <laughs> but that is the that is a thing you know can it be done yes you know we have seen several of these companies that grew animal cells in a contained environment to create it you know we saw dr post with his uh burger a long time ago so it has been done can it be done at the price point is what we are all uh, is the first question that needs to be answered in addition to everything else um you need to understand that this is early stage, that this is high risk, that you are placing a significant amount of uh, faith, if you will, in founders who, with a mix of their knowledge and the team that they build around them, will be able to solve for these challenges and are realistic about it. At the same time, you don't want someone too realistic because if you if you want to break a paradigm, you know <laughs> you need to think outside of the box. So uh, and you know not a lot of these companies will succeed, but that is not unique to this space. You know, so I think we live in a world where entrepreneurship has become the thing, which is fabulous. I've always loved entrepreneurship. But the world was not like this in the 80s, in the days of IBM, if you will, which was another company way back then. Um, We are now in a world where everything is being disrupted. We're also in a world where the expectations on time have been reduced. And I think that's a very important one to say because, you know, there's a lot of these tech companies that in a short period of time reach ridiculous valuations that sometimes are justified uh, because their revenues are very big. But in food, because of what we've talked about, being able to prove out the products, being able to find a way to scale manufacturing, and you do the scale in steps, uh, being able to grow out the demand, it's going to take a lot of time. And in the cultivated, we are in the very, very earliest of stages. Look at Apple today. How many trillions of dollars is a company worth? We must remember that it was not that long ago that they needed to take a lifeline from Microsoft, their foreign enemy at the time, because they were about to go under. But you can say that people who invested in Apple at the very early stages did very well. Then there was a period of time that as a stock, it wasn't that attractive. And then it ramped up again in a huge manner. Will that happen to cultivate it? I don't know, but we we, uh, we, we need to be mindful that uh, it takes time to build companies, and it takes risk.
1: Yeah, uh, again, well put I, I think um, I think it's a, it's a big bet for sure. it's high risk. It doesn't mean we we shouldn't try it. Um, there's all, risk involved with all entrepreneurship, and this is you know the stakes are high if you get it right. The reward is also pretty high. So, you know, I'm curious from a standpoint of your, you know, your LPs who who are partners in your fund. Uh, how did they view your investment portfolio and your thesis? Um, do you have folks who are more interested in the, say, the plant based side of alternative proteins as a way to maybe? have shorter investment horizons and have quicker exits versus others who are happy to take the long view? Or do you not allow them to make such distinctions? And if you're in, you're part of, you know, this is new fund, uh, your money is spread across. um, I'm just curious more in terms of like the way you, you, you put together your fund and, you know, what questions you're getting as you fundraise and after all, this is money coming from your LPs, and I'm sure they, they have questions not just about where the funds are being deployed, but probably have questions around the time frame in which they're going to start to see some return. So how do you approach those conversations from an LP standpoint?
2: So we're very fortunate. Uh, I have to say that uh, a broad base of uh, LPs chose to trust us with their money. And to put it to good work, you know that's how we that's how I see it, and we have a fiduciary responsibility to do our best efforts uh, with what we agreed with them. And what we agreed is that we want to help disrupt uh, how people look at proteins by investing in the best possible companies. And these companies uh, will look will be will be facing, different challenges, and we'll be approaching them in different ways. Some of these companies that we've invested in uh, have very, very sophisticated technology, and that really builds about their moat. Other companies have a mix of unique technology or trade secrets and a way to get into the market because they have relationships, they have an understanding of how it works, Others are companies that were able to identify a white space, an underserved uh, demand that is being uh, that, that is being overlooked by others. So it is a mix. I think the commonality within our LPS is that they recognize the opportunity uh, to create change, and that this change will have both a potentially lucrative financial ROI, and a positive effect on the planet. Uh, we've been doing this for these reasons for a long time. Sustainability now has become a buzzword. I love it. I love that it is top of mind of everybody from Jamie Dimon to, uh, you know, to whoever, whatever politician you're talking about now. Um uh, We have been doing this for those reasons for a long time. We recognize that there is a sense of urgency from the planet. So when they come to us, they do want to know why this company, why not this company? Why are you looking at it? How are you thinking of valuation? And these are not cookie cutter responses that we give them. But uh, it is a base of saying, look, we believe in this company for these reasons, we have identified these potential risks and we think that if we decide to deploy funds here it's because the rewards outweigh the risks and we also recognize we won't always get it right
1: that's important i guess you have to be honest about that too that's just the the nature of the the game you're playing um with with venture right so um one follow-up question on cultivated meat do you think um, that the quickest path to market for some companies in the space is going to be in the cultivated blends with plant-based space how uh, how bullish are you about that being uh, something we're going to see quicker than say whole cut meats or uh, you know, all all cultivated meat on the market in the U.S. Um, what's your take on all of that in general?
2: I think yes. I think from an, an economics point of view, the blend is probably the initial path. Uh, you know, and sometimes it might be the only path necessary. You know, what is the purpose of the blend? If what you're doing is you're taking a plant based base that has a fabulous texture, but you want to add cultivated fats because they will enhance the mouthfeel and will make it uh, more enjoyable to cook and to enjoy, you might have a stellar product right then and there, which will, can also coexist in the market in a couple of years down the line with a product that is fully cultivated. You know, I think when, uh, when we're looking at investments, it's not a zero-sum, winner-take-all category. Uh, if you go to any supermarket, you see a lot of different brands with a lot of different value propositions uh, that connect with consumers in different ways. So our thesis is that that will continue to be the case. I do foresee, hopefully, the meat aisle in I don't know how long a period of time from now, where we might have some animal protein still there, but next to it, we have the fully cultivated. And next to it, we have the fully fermented. And then we have all these blends. And then we have plant-based. And then what we're doing is we are giving consumers a choice. Because at the end of the day, that is how this battle is won. By consumers deciding, I want that. And consumers decide for a variety of reasons. Uh, sometimes they're very logical. Sometimes they're not. And it's part of the path of understanding what they want, when they want it. And I would also add that consumer sentiment is something that evolves.
1: So when you were talking about your LPs and how sustainability is such a, it's become a buzzword now, as such, again, which is which is funny because this this should have been a buzzword 20 years ago, um, but better late than never, right? And I know the big focus on a lot of, um, from the investment community is the idea of ESG uh, investment. And, you know, just generally looking at ESG frameworks and how they're allocating capital towards Efforts or industries or companies that meet certain environmental, social governance criteria. How does how does how much of that factored into your new fundraise? Um, what kind of you know how much of that was an issue, and what kind of questions do do LPs have around that? And I guess this is too many questions in one question, but I'm just bear with me for a second. Do you think ESG even covers some of the potential of what? your fund does, which is maybe beyond it's ESG plus almost, because it it touches on species that are going extinct. It touches on taking animals out of the supply chain. As far as my reading of all ESG frameworks go, it, they, they fail to capture those subtleties of the impact we can have on the planet. So generally your thoughts on ESG and how much of that has been a factor as you were fundraising for your new fund.
2: So, because what we were doing uh, already had ESG as a top of mind, we wanted to surround ourselves by people who thought alike. Um, and we realized that actually right now, a lot of very large institutions actually have these mandates. So, but we needed to make sure that we upped our game, you know? It is not enough to just say that your investments will bring about positive change. I think right now we're in this point where there is a lot of awareness of the need for ESG-related activities in all sorts of industries. Um, There is still a lack of agreement on how to measure and what are the metrics and what is possible and what is not. And so we knew we don't have all the answers, but we wanted to try and get as many mechanisms in place enabled to do so. Uh, Along the lines, we have built out an an impact team within Unovis, so that we start addressing these matters uh, with the appropriate uh, time uh, that they require and understanding. We also partnered with a company called How Good, or rather we hired them uh, to help us evaluate the impact of our portfolio companies. Um, what we've come to understand is that everybody has a lot of questions uh, because there are no set standards yet and everybody's trying to figure it out and so are we uh but we are putting in active uh investments into active money into being able to do this in a way that we can provide quantitative data that we can stand behind in terms of how it came about will it be perfect nope is it better than nothing definitely it's also something that we will continue to improve on uh, uh, during the course of the next few years. And we also want to share our learnings with others. I think the closer we get to certain standards, the easier it will be for everybody from investors to food manufacturers and more importantly to consumers to understand that you know, sometimes companies want to do great, but uh, they're actually not hitting the mark and it's not out of uh, not trying. But if consumers, it, it, it's more important that the companies that are doing good be able to showcase that in a way that is clear to consumers than the companies that are great at creating messaging that might not, so be, not be so good at creating impact do so.
1: And how do you think the industry, and I guess this depends on which industry we're talking about, right? Let's just say, I guess plant-based is a little bit, I wouldn't say a little bit, way more mature compared to some of the other technologies you're looking at. How can the industry play a role in coming together to set some standards? Um, Like whose responsibility is that? I know as a fund, you've got a large portfolio of companies you perhaps are in a pretty good vantage point but at the same time you know there are tons of other funds out there and there's all kinds of uh, trade associations there's 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 others who can potentially play a more leadership role here how, how do you think all of this is going to um, evolve and i ask the question because it needs to happen and you know we all know it needs to happen and we we know alternative proteins as a category writ large is uh, in, a, in a very obvious way way more sustainable than anything that is produced from uh, factory farms. Yet for some reason we've we've maybe not been quick enough to make the quantified case for why these products and technologies are actually currently as well as potentially in the future going to have a significant positive impact because on the surface you look at the websites of the companies they all say yes we're more sustainable but as we've seen recently whether it's the new york times or other publications have somehow started to weave a new narrative that it is the plant-based and or the cultivated meat companies that are the ones that are not transparent compared to um industrial livestock producers uh, you know for someone like uh, I mean I guess from my perspective vantage point it just seems like an absurd argument but at the same time they, they they make a they weave the story in a way that makes a pretty convincing case that the industry is 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 not being transparent because they're relying on commodity crops and the whole supply chain is not very uh tra- not very not as sustainable as it needs to be not as good when it comes to social governance standards um so yeah i would just love your your thoughts on how we are currently getting together to to focus on these challenges and in your opinion like who should take the lead on this
2: look there are very large financial interests that are doing whatever financial interest does they're trying to protect their turf. like okay Um, if we take a much broader view the landscape is shifting it's evolving uh, i'm not that concerned of the news of the past three months over the past six months uh, everybody's gonna hire a pr firm and they're gonna put out a couple of things and if we look at the quality of the con- negative commentary to your point, uh, it falls short. That's a reality. But you know they're doing what they have because people have jobs; they have to defend them. Um, I think that to your point, the larger checks are going to start showing up soon. If we think of the size of the industry, plant-based alternative proteins as a whole, visa be others. It's just now starting to get some real traction by, you know, the companies that sign the checks with many more zeros than I can count to almost. Um and that will be, you know, checks to invest in infrastructure along these lines. And it's coming from, you know, all sorts of investors. You also have governments such as the government of Canada that has identified alternative proteins as some of a strategic importance for their future. So now that these larger checks are going to start showing up, I think now is when those companies are going to start to push towards this standardization. I mean, I'm not that familiar with solar, um, but I'm pretty sure something like that happened not too long ago. Um, So if we look at it, I think if we just see it, you know, it's the same story. It just plays out in a different perspective. Um, You know, what I haven't heard anybody have any commentary on is in all the subsidies that animal protein companies uh, receive. That is a very interesting subject if you think about it. Um, At the same time, yes, startups probably do not have the mechanisms to accurately measure A lot of things but the large corporates don't do it either you know so uh obviously people are trying to pick you know minor arguments to create mountains where there is nothing uh that's what it is they need a job fine uh the world is changing younger generations are recognizing that this that there's a lot of good here is it all perfect no but it never is you know, but you see some things, such as the dairy industry in the United States. It's taking a hit. Why is it taking a hit? Because consumers are saying, I want something else. And who those consumers are, it's what's most surprising. Uh I was not too recently, not too long ago, at a dinner with some uh, food executives from a very large food company, and these were gentlemen in, you know. In their sixties or so, and everybody drank a plant-based milk by choice, and I was really surprised like uh you know they they're still trying to understand the alternative protein landscape, but they are like, "Oh yeah, at home, that's what I drink." If you yeah. think about it, to me, that was mind blowing because yeah. there there was agreement there on what they wanted, so if it starts with the with the beverages and then it evolves into the hamburgers, why not?" Have a natural into evolution into everything else that we eat.
1: Yeah, I know. You, you, it's 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 easy to get um, distracted by minor uh, criticisms, but I, I think it's natural. It's a natural evolution. Some of it's pushed by financial interests, and I think some is just pushed by journalists who want to write something provocative um that especially and if anything i think it tells us that the moment there's a counter narrative it tells you you finally have a narrative and that you maybe are making an impact so uh, i think it's a sign that that your what, what whatever is happening in this space is working um and i think some in some some of the criticism there's there's lessons to be learned uh, back to your point earlier about entrepreneurs being decisive but at the same time flexible i think in some cases, we can learn on how we can do better when it comes to, uh, uh, to to thinking beyond just sustainability and also looking at the impact on communities and improving accessibility and, equi- and equitable access to food. I think there's work that can be done there and we're, we're at the early stages. And again, the owners should not all fall to startups to do all of this, but to s to the extent we can, as a as an industry, if you can call it that, can come together and uh, and do the right things, I think we are definitely way better positioned um, to do that than the food industry that came before us. Whether it is the animal protein production and industrial livestock, they have been getting away with you know murder, literally and figuratively, for for, for centuries. And I think it's time for us to to show how it can be done the right way. And it's going to take years. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, and many are going to make mistakes along the way.
2: Let, let's also be mindful of what they were trying to solve for during mm-hmm. all, those, all that time. Um, food companies, they were trying to solve for volume and pricing yeah. uh, because there was a lack of awareness of the impacts that their choices had. Um, I'm not excusing them. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, large corporations are just made up of individuals that are trying to do the best that they can. Some might make uh, decisions that are morally questionable, but many aren't. You know, they just have a job. You know, at the end of the day, I I, I try to be mindful and uh, and being sympathetic, Uh, being on the other side, trying to do the best in a short amount of time with what they can.
1: Yeah, I was recently speaking to a class at NYU, and I was trying to sum up what the purpose of the food system was in a very short amount of time. And and I was like, all you have to remember is that the system we have inherited today is exactly to the point you just raised, is designed to do two things, Mac- produce the most amount of food at the cheapest possible cost. And that's what's gotten us here. And now, of course, when we look at the food system, we're thinking about sustainability and equity and, uh, you know, the fair treatment of people and animals and land and, the water and the rainforest, but the food system was not designed from the ground up, considering all those factors. Not that, that that was the right thing, but that's how it evolved. And there are several historical reasons why it evolved that way. You can't really necessarily blame any one individual, or for that matter, even one company. Um, you know, I think we're all from the government to free market economics to uh, you know, f- every food company, you know, the, the it's we the food system we have today, at least in America, is the epitome of the American dream. It's like this is what happens when you allow capitalism to run amok without factoring in the unintended consequences. And now that we know all that, how can we reimagine it? What can we make it look like? And you know, back to this discussion of is um cultivated meat just too high risk. I think we ought to try, right? I, and I think I always end up there in the end when people present challenges or criticize uh, current developments. Is that we ought to try, and if people are willing to fund it, then why not? You know. And and I think maybe some of this won't come to fruition for the next fifty years uh, when it comes to scale and price parity. But I that's still a pretty small timeline in the larger scheme of things um so anyway I, I just think there's so much more to be done here it's it's way more complicated than we sometimes make it out to be um and and i think you know it, our journalists try to do their best and so do uh critics and and i guess so do companies at the same time and their pr firms and in the end of the day the reality gets lost in all these simple oversimplified messages of what's happening in the food industry
2: Agreed. agreed. Uh, We don't have all the answers. Things need to play out. We are going to play a small part, hopefully, to move things forward. And that's how we see ourselves. We don't try to uh, overestimate our impact. We don't try to undersell ourselves either. But uh, there are so many forces outside of our control. uh, We need to be mindful of it.
1: Mm -hmm. And so, you know, speaking of the future, I close out almost every episode with this question Uh, What is your, in your estimation, if you look ahead to the year 2050, um, in your mind, if it all works out within that time frame, or at least we've made a lot of progress by 2050, I'm hoping we have, and I'm sure you are as well, what do you think the food system is going to look like in 2050?
2: 2050, wow. I think... There will be an emphasis on food being uh, much more nutritious. I think that food will continue to serve several purposes. Uh, food talks a lot about our history, uh, our journey as people, it is how we socialize. It is how all our, you know, there's a lot of memories from when we are young that are related to food. I think that continues onward. I do think that there were certain, there will be certain situations where you can take a pill if you aren't able to get, a, a, you know, to have lunch on any particular day and get all the nutrition. I'm just hoping that will be the very, very far off exception and not be more of the norm. I am hoping that there will be more balance uh, between uh, the way that we grow food and our environment. Uh, Hoping we bring back the oceans and all the life uh, that has been depleted there. Hope that our airs are cleaner and our land is put to better use uh, than grazing hundreds of millions of cattle and sheep and chickens and whatnot. Um, so I'm hoping for all of that. I I also hope that it is delicious uh, because, you know, there are innovations in food that continue to happen. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know if that's a good answer, but uh, I am hopeful that it is tastier, better for us, better for the environment.
1: Well, you're definitely uh, helping to make that happen by placing some really informed bets on companies that hopefully will get us there. So Dan, I appreciate your time today and for all your insights, uh, I feel like I can just keep talking. And so I'm going to have to be respectful of your time and close out this podcast uh, at this point. But I do think this is going to be first of many conversations we have on this subject and, and a lot more.
2: Neil, I'd like to thank you for all you do. You definitely bring about a very uh, engaging podcast that I have listened to many times and being here really is a highlight uh, for me. So thank you very much.
1: You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, All you have to do is subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.